0: Hello, and welcome back to our Playback Summer. Two years ago now, I interviewed Suzanne DeMalley about her experience advocating to get microphones in the classrooms of her son with auditory processing disorder. She was an incredible guest, determined, clear-headed, and insightful about the changes needed for school systems to become less inherently ableist. I learned so much from her about the kind of work that needs to go into our education systems to make them more truly inclusive. And also that change is possible when even one person is willing to do the work of fixing a problem that they perceive in the system. I hope you'll learn from this episode. Enjoy. Welcome back to Neurodiverging. Thank you so much for tuning in with me today. If you're new here, I'm Danielle Sullivan and I'm your host. Neurodiverging is a podcast dedicated to helping neurodiverse folks find the resources we need to live better lives as individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as part of the larger world community. If you're interested in learning more, did you hit the subscribe button to make sure you're notified when there's a new episode? And please check out Neurodiverging on Patreon. Our guest today is Suzanne Ruptamalli, who's recently published an amazing book called Can You Hear Me Now? As a parent to a child with auditory processing disorder, Suzanne fought a nationwide battle against bureaucracy to get teacher microphones into classrooms throughout the United States. Research into her son's learning difficulties led her to author the Classroom Auditory Learning Issues Resolution, which was adopted by the National Parent-Teacher Association in July 2007. Suzanne was awarded the National PTA's Life Achievement Award in May 2007, the highest honor from the nation's largest child advocacy organization. Then, Suzanne taught for seven years in the Baltimore County public school system, where she learned about the policies and bureaucracy that hurt our children's learning from the inside of the system. In Can You Hear Me Now, she walks parents and teachers through everything they need to know to make a difference in their local district and beyond, from the most basic questions they should be asking to the most effective steps they can take to make their voices heard. I enjoyed reading this book so much. I learned a ton, and I'm going to put some links to learn more about it in the show notes below. So please check those out. And before we dive into the interview, I just want to preface our discussion briefly by talking a little bit about auditory processing disorder. So for those of you who aren't familiar with it, auditory processing disorder affects at least three to five percent of school-age children, as well as many adults. It's basically a neurological issue where you hear the sounds in your environment fully, all the biologics of your hearing work, but your brain doesn't process or handle those sounds appropriately. If you're at all familiar with sensory processing disorder, this might sound familiar, and yes, it's pretty similar. Auditory processing disorder can occur by itself, but it also often co-occurs as part of sensory processing disorder and also sometimes with autism and ADHD. So it ends up affecting many, many families who I think are probably listening to this podcast right now. I have auditory processing disorder. My son has it. My daughter isn't diagnosed but struggles with all processing sometimes, so she might qualify. I'm not sure. I don't think before this conversation that I'd ever talked with a parent specifically about auditory processing disorder before, and talking to Suzanne, I recognized so much of my own experience with my son in her stories about her son, Christopher. My hope is that you'll learn a lot from this conversation and be energized and encouraged to make a change in your school systems if needed. And with that, here we go. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to Neurodiverging. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I know you've just written this fantastic book, Can You Hear Me Now?, which I really enjoyed reading. And you've split the book into two sections where one is about your experience with your son's auditory processing disorder and how you want to wanted to get teacher microphones into the classroom to help support auditory needs for all kids. And then the second part of your book is about your experience in the Baltimore school system as a teacher. So I wanted to just start off by talking about your family's experience with auditory processing disorder. So in your book, you said your son Christopher was diagnosed with auditory processing disorder when he was pretty young, right? Right, he was in kindergarten at the time. That is very young, I was trying to remember. My son also has it uh, and we first noticed issues around that time too. And would you talk a little bit more about Christopher's initial troubles and what as a parent you noticed he was struggling with what was going
1: on at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as a parent, the most um, the most obvious problem that I saw was with his speech, or I should say that I heard was with his speech. Um, he, w- I think, he was delayed when he started to speak. Um, at two years old, he was saying very few words. Um, and they were also very unclear. And the older he got, he was, you know, starting to say more words. But um, again, the, the way he said them, it was just very difficult to understand. Um, you know, I could tell that, you know, for the most part, when I would ask him something, like, you know, I'm a, you ask a, a young child, two or three-year-old, you're asking pretty basic questions. But I could tell that he understood, he seemed to understand what I was asking him, but just his Way of communicating back to me was very unclear. Um, he had, was in a preschool program for two and three year olds, and the preschool teachers had said, you know, he has trouble naming just basic objects and people, animals, those kind of things. And um, at three, he couldn't count beyond nine. Um, he was constantly misusing pronouns. He would never use the pronoun I. He would always say me. So um, me have a truck, me want to do this. And I initially thought, yeah, that's just maybe that's normal for young children. But uh, preschool teachers had said, no, this is really, you know, this is a problem. Um really the, his older sister could understand a lot of what he said, but his father, um, you know, because he was gone most of the day and he really had great difficulty understanding him as well as his teachers and his, his peers, even his young classmates, um, would, you know, laugh or giggle in class when he would say something because it sounded funny. Um, I also noticed that he started to sort of digress in terms of, um, his ability to do just basic self-help things like put on a pair of pants or shoes, um, you know, toilet training, even things like that. He just, he was going backwards. And, you know, I I later learned that that's actually called learned helplessness when a child just sort of feels like they don't have control over a situation. They start to just give up on things that they can do. Um, Socially, he also with children, he, I would see, we would live in a neighborhood with a lot of, young kids um and at that time there was just this large group that would always play together and he would sort of just um a lot of times go off on his own and i think part of that was um i he would not like noisy situations so i think sometimes the noise was overwhelming for him and i saw this i remember in church um when the congregation would sing he would cover his ears and, and that's what kind of clued me into like, oh, he really seems like he doesn't like noise. Um, so those were all kind of things that, um, you know, I saw in his preschool teachers were seeing. And the, the preschool teachers at one point, I think he was in the threes, had recommended that I have his speech tested through a county program called Child Find um, that tries to identify early on any sort of um. Problem that might impact educational learning. So I had had that tested, and they did identify him when he was a little over three years old with a speech and language impairment. And we started to receive services for that. But when he was in kindergarten, um, that's really kind of where, you know, everybody sort of realized that this is more than just you know um, typical for a boy because I used to hear that all the time when I'd yeah. bring up a concern oh well boys develop slower and um, you know it, everybody started to kind of see that something just isn't right and it was his kindergarten teacher who called me in for a conference in November um, and said you know I that she was very concerned and you know she said he could not you um, he wouldn't even try to sing the alphabet song. He couldn't say his alphabet. There was a whole section of it, that LMNOP section, that he just had no idea what letters were in that section. Um, phonics were a real struggle for him. So, you know, they were starting to teach the beginning of reading, and he was having great difficulty with that. Um, he could not count beyond 10, he couldn't sequence numbers 11 through 20. Um, socially he was withdrawing from the class like during circle time when they would share he would not want to share anything and um he started to sort of you know withdraw himself from his peers in his group and he actually you know complained that school was just too hard for him yeah that's really
0: tough for a parent to deal with
1: yes yeah. I I left that conference and I I just sobbed you know I just I just sobbed because, and it's, it's strange because, you know, I was very upset and I was crying for that reason, but in a way it was almost also a release for me yeah. um, because I had had these concerns in my gut for so long. And finally someone else was agreeing with me and yeah. saying, you know, I think you should, should take him and have some testing done. So, you know, it was, it was a little like good and bad because you know it's just it's scary because you don't know what the problem is but I felt a little better that someone else was agreeing with me and seeing a problem too and not just dismissing my concerns yeah I
0: really appreciate you telling us your story and I was one of the reasons I was so excited when you agreed to come do this podcast is because when I was reading your book uh even though my child has been diagnosed as autistic, as opposed to auditory processing being the primary issue, so much of your story rings true to my experience in, as a first-time mom, especially in seeing a child who is not progressing typically and has a lot of the same kinds of issues. And I know a lot of times auditory processing disorder can look any kind of hearing issue or processing issue can look autism like autism and vice mm-hmm. versa in the beginning before the child is a little older. Um, so when we initially got my son diagnosed, we were looking for, is it a hearing issue? Is he hard of hearing or experiencing deafness? Is it auditory processing? Is it autism? What is going on? And I had thought that something was going on from very young, he had the same speech delays and the same issues, but I wasn't getting that validated from, other people until he went into school and everybody his teachers were saying oh you know this is actually far below what we expect whereas you know my mom and my family were saying oh boys develop slower boy you right. know, you boys need more time so it is um, disheartening but also helpful to hear from someone else who and I know a lot of our listeners are going through similar experiences where I'm sure that they can relate to that feeling of Oh, this is a real thing. This is not me making up something as a parent who's
1: overly concerned, right. you know. And I think too, as a mother, you know, I before someone else sort of validated my concerns, you know, I felt guilty yes. for thinking that, you know, how can any mother feel like something's wrong with their child or that they're not progressing the way they should be, you know, and and he had an older sister who really you know, caught on to things quickly and, and was, you know, always right on schedule or, or ahead. And so, you know, I felt guilty too, like, well, maybe I'm comparing him to her and I shouldn't be doing that. So, you know, there's just as a mother, you just feel so many, yeah. so many emotions. Yeah. And I
0: felt the sort of guilt of maybe I, as a first time parent, maybe I did something wrong, like I'm parenting mm-hmm. wrong and I'm creating this issue. So to get it kind of heard from the outside is really Right, um, really something I think a lot of people can relate to. So then, once you got the diagnosis, you went and did the speech evaluation and went through Child Find, and then once you got the auditory processing diagnosis back, how did it impact your son and your family? Like, what were some of the things you were most worried
1: about when we first got the do- diagnosis? Um, I don't think it really impacted Christopher very much, just because he was so young. I don't, you know, I don't think he really knew. He probably um, I don't know, I think he, when he went for the testing, this is before we got the diagnosis, but the educational testing, um, I think in a way he felt maybe a little relieved that someone was trying to help him, you know? So um, that, that was, you know, I think that was a little comforting. Um, but it impacted our family because, um, you know, well, first of all, I was just af- so afraid because I, didn't under I didn't know what the diagnosis meant. I knew it was something neurological, and so that just presented a big concern for me because I just you know I just thought, oh my gosh, if it's if it's neurological, that maybe means he's not going to be able to learn, and he's not going to be able to be in a mainstream classroom, and you know he'll he'll not he won't be able to have friends and <laughs> do all these things, and um, so I you know I really I was very scared, um, and I had to educate myself and that's really what started to kind of alleviate some of those fears is when I did start to, to learn about it more. I think, you know, knowledge is, is is helpful in that way. It's comforting in that way, but you know, it did impact the family, I think, because, you know, I turned my kitchen into a classroom and I tried to fill in all those gaps and those areas of concern that the kindergarten teacher had brought up. So um, you know, physically our home kind of became a little bit different and I was spending a lot of time helping him and he had two other siblings. So I think they probably, especially the older one, probably noticed a little more that, you know, mom's busy with Christopher and, you know, financially it impacted us certainly because once he did get the diagnosis, we started implementing some of those recommendations like speech and language therapy. And we used a program called fast forward um, which was quite expensive. So, um, you know, it, it did impact the family, um, probably not Christopher as much when he was young. Yeah, working through that fear that you were talking about of the diagnosis is
0: also resonates with me because you don't know until you know, you don't know. And there is always that fear of getting your, having, letting your kid be happy, getting them friends and making them able to be understood and just feeling comfortable with the world. And that can be really hard when you are scared that they won't ever be. able Yeah, to it, I know I it is.
1: It's, um you know, I think the fear is just caused by you just don't know, you don't know what that diagnosis means, you don't know what their life is yes. going to be like. And, um, and that's really, you know, I think your mind just kind of goes off in all the worst directions. And so when you sort of, you know, try to educate yourself more on know, his particular problem and what can I do to help, then it kind of focuses your mind in the right direction. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You
0: made a lot of changes to your home to, like you said, make it into a classroom to kind of support Christopher's needs. But what about in the classroom? So in your book, you talked a little bit about
1: the IP process in first grade, I think it was when he moved out of kindergarten. Yeah, well, he had, um, he was diagnosed in kindergarten and When he was in kindergarten, he was in a private setting. Um, He attended kindergarten at a church that was up the street from us and they had a preschool program and then a kindergarten program. And when, when I got the diagnosis and then I got some recommendations on what they could do in the classroom to support him better, I turned that information over to his teacher and the director of that private school and immediately they put everything in the place, the very next. I
0: remember reading that, that was amazing. It was amazing. Cause... I
1: mean, they really went out of their way to do everything that they could that was suggested to them immediately. Um, not so in the public system. <laughs> um, you know, we had, I think my husband and I had um, scheduled a meeting in March of his kindergarten year With the public school that he would be going into, so that we could bring these problems to their attention and do whatever we needed to do to get those accommodations in place for when he would start the public system. And, um, you know, first I just learned that there's a process for that, and you can't just say, here's the paper, please do items one through five, you know, and have them do it. So you have to go through a, a process of proving that there's a need. Um, And then, you know, really sort of arguing or advocating for it. And we had had all this private testing done. We turned over all the results from that private testing. And, you know, you're probably very aware that the public school system has to um, look at that information and consider it, but they don't have to go by it and use it in their Mm -hmm. final determination. And, you know, they did a little bit of their own testing, very little. Um, and they concluded basically that there really wasn't any need to do anything for him. Um, by that time, the speech and language services that he had gotten for free through the public system when he was in preschool had ended. They had said that he had satisfied all of his goals at that point, um, which, was miraculous because, you know, I think two months before it ended, he wasn't anywhere near satisfying them. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's like, he can do everything, you know. Um, And I, I don't know if they pushed back because he had qualified for services at one point and then they had released him from that. And maybe there was a concern of, you know, well, we said he was fine and we released him and now here we are putting him back in the system again. I don't know if that played into it. Um, I think part of it is with auditory processing, it is just a really different kind of problem, a different issue that I think if we had gone in and said, you know, he has a hearing deficit and, you know, he Mm -hmm. can't hear this frequency of sound in one or both ears. I think people are just more familiar with that. And there are, you know, accommodations that they know to put in place that definitely will help. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's just a, anything nor maybe anything neurological, Um, certainly auditory processing. I think it was, it's just a little bit more vague and unknown. I felt like I was constantly trying to explain what the problem was. And, you know, in many ways he was, seemed normal and fine. And, you know, got the scores that they thought a child his age should get on tests. He was very strong visually. Um, So any kind of testing that they did that involved visual a visual component, you know, he scored very well in. Um, but there were some tests that, you know, indicated he was extremely weak in phonics, and indicated a weakness in this, um, the temporal processing of um, auditory processing. So, yeah. um, you know, for whatever reason, they did not think that he qualified, they said they would sort of watch him and You know, we would monitor his progress, I think, was the how they responded. Frustrating. Yes. And and I'll tell you what was really frustrating, too. Um, You know, I had become during the course of my research on his particular problem, I had uncovered just all of this research about how every child in a classroom is at risk for not being able to hear and understand what their teacher says because of poor acoustics in the classrooms, and because all children have immature auditory neurological capabilities until they're in their teens. It's not fully developed. So, you know, what that means is if I, as an adult, am in a classroom, and I'm standing there with a five or a six-year-old next to me, we can be in the same environment. The teacher's speaking at the same, you know, decibel level, and that background noise is at the same level. We're both hearing it. But I can understand, I might be able to understand something that that child cannot, um, because my brain can fill in the missing pieces if there is a part of a word that I don't pick up on. Um, It just, as an adult, we do this automatically and we don't even realize we're doing it. And children don't have those neurological abilities when they're young. So I had uncovered all of that. And I had uncovered a very easy solution for it, give a teacher a wireless microphone and put um, you know, one or more speakers in the classroom. And it was a real easy solution. It was really not very expensive to do. It was equivalent to the cost of about one computer per classroom. And so I had become a really strong advocate for putting this technology in the schools. And a company that made um, a system like that donated one to me to use as part of my advocacy. And I, so I had this speaker and wireless microphone and I offered it to the the public school where Christopher was attending um, or would be attending in first grade and they wouldn't use it. You know, I hear it was like a free piece of equipment. And I say, could you at least like put this speaker in the back of the room? All you have to do is plug it in. That's it. You know, there's no maintenance for you. And the teacher wears a wireless microphone on a lanyard around their neck. And the only thing you have to do is charge it at night, you know, just plug it in so the batteries recharge at night. And they would not use it because legally they weren't obligated to use it. And they were afraid if something happened to the equipment, then they would be obligated to, I guess, reimburse it. And, you know, that was just so frustrating to me because I'm like, you're really, you're not going to do anything that I'm asking. And here I'm giving you something free to use that will not only help him, but it will help every child in the classroom. And it's going to help the teacher's voice so that they're not straining their voice all day long and and you won't use it. And so that really was sort of like, (laughs) you know, really incredibly frustrating as a parent. The
0: number of times in your book that the bureaucracy... (laughs) sort of stopped you and others from being able to get things done, Mm -hmm. just as a reader was (laughs) so frustrating. And also as a, you know, a person with auditory processing issues and a child with auditory processing issues, sort of more close to home. How, like, this is one of the (laughs) easiest problems to solve. I don't know, I'm thinking, sorry, I'm thinking of all the the diagnoses in our family that are neurological issues like autism, like ADHD, like auditory processing disorder. And of all of those, the one that's probably the easiest to solve, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. in terms of making it easier for the person to function in the world is the auditory processing disorder. You know, the number of times you hit walls (sighs) was just like astonishing and so frustrating and sad from. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's
1: it's just ridiculous. And, you know, it, it points out why the, why the education system is, is in such bad shape and why we really need, you know, to make it better because they're just you know things that like you said could could easily be be fixed or made better or improved and you know the bureaucracy a lot of times is what gets in the way yeah
0: yeah so you talked a little bit about kind of your you sort of started talking about your experience with the advocacy for teacher microphones so in the book you talked a lot about how you worked to um, sort of popularize that and get it moving within your school system, but also with the PTA nationwide and all the work you did. And I was wondering if you could talk and tell us a little bit more about your journey working on getting those microphones into the classroom and what were some of the bureaucratic issues that you encountered that are mm-hmm. sort of the most, I know, there's a <laughs> litany of them, <laughs> so you can maybe choose your uh, your most frustrating or, or however you would sure. like, but just to give people an idea of what you're up against
1: with some of this. I... I think I gave my first, um, my first presentation to the public school that Christopher would be going into. So he, he was still in kindergarten. Um, he, he was diagnosed, I believe it was like in January 2005. And um, by March 2005, I had uncovered, you know, all the research that supported using this technology and April 2005, so, you know, within four months, I had made a, um, an appointment to speak at a school improvement team meeting at the public school that he would be attending the following year for first grade, and I put together a PowerPoint that just kind of summarized, you know, what the problem was, who would impact it, impacted, which is really all of the kids in the classroom, the um, simple solution, and then the research that supported that if we put these in the schools, it will improve academics and literacy and behavior and attention and reduce teacher absenteeism from vocal fatigue and reduce special education referrals. So I had that research as like the last part um, and it was, I, I don't know. I think I talked for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. I was so nervous. <laughs> and, um, in fact, I, I sat down as soon as I was done going through this PowerPoint, my husband was with me and he sort of nudged me and he said, you got to stand up and ask if there are any questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did, um, but the school improvement team was immediately on board with it. And they then wanted me to present it to the school's PTA the following month. So I I did the same thing, only the next time I gave that presentation to the school's PTA, I had invited a school board member that um, represented that district. And I had contacted him, someone had suggested that I reach out to him. Um, He was a lawyer in the area and he was a member of the school board. And I had reached out to him, I had shared with him my research ahead of time. And he really, was immediately supportive. Um, I'm not saying he was like, oh, here, let's put it in every school and I'll give you a check. But he was definitely <laughs> supportive of learning more about it and you know, really taking it to the next step. So he attended as well. And then he told me that you're gonna need to share this information with the school board because for one thing, if you make a change to a school facility, which would be done if you're putting speakers into the ceiling, of the classrooms, you're going to need to have the uh, school board's going to have to approve it, and you have to, they have to select a vendor, and it's a very, very long process. I didn't even know the process at that point. I just knew I need to do this next step. He said, You need to attend a school board meeting. So I, I did that. And I found out at school board meetings, the public is only allowed in my area was only allowed to speak for three minutes. <laughs> At the end, I remember reading that. I was just like, ah, like, how do you do everything? And you had to get there before the meeting started to sign up so that you got one of the 10 open slots to be a public speaker. Um, So I had, since I had gotten some parents on board with it from the school improvement team, I I rallied some of those people and said, would you also go with me and be a public speaker so that instead of just getting three minutes on the topic, if we all speak together, we can get like maybe nine minutes or 12 minutes on the topic. So a few people did that and we spoke and we got the attention of the school board pretty early on. At least they they realized like, you know, this seems to be um, sort of an important issue, and there's enough people here speaking about it, you know, maybe we should listen at the end of a very long meeting, and I turned over, I was able to give out, hand, you know, handouts and submit those at the end, and I did all that with the research, and then I found out I needed to start attending budget meetings for the district, oh. because if, they're going to do anything, it has to be in the budget to do so. So I had to go, Baltimore County where I live is a a pretty large county. Um, And so it's divided into different areas. And I had to speak in all the different areas at the budget meeting to, again, I was allowed three minutes to advocate for them, including something in their budget to buy this equipment. Um, So that was kind of the beginning of what happened within my school district. And I just realized early on, that you know, this is a bigger problem than just there are a bigger need than just something for my son or something for his school or something for our county, and um, you know, at some point I said I really, I really, don't understand why every child across the nation doesn't have this in their classroom, and I formed a nonprofit organization to kind of take it to that next level. Um, I began speaking everywhere that I could at schools to uh, local PTA meetings, to politicians, just anywhere, anyone that would listen to me, basically, I was there. Um, And I, you know, I traveled around initially in Maryland a lot. And then um, I did get, I wrote a resolution that was adopted by our local PTA, by the Baltimore County PTA. And the Maryland State PTA then, also backed that resolution and sponsored it. And it eventually, it was, um, I had to write another one for the national PTA. And when I got to that level, I had, by that time, that was about two years later, that was in 2007, I had gained the support then once they ratified it of 6 million national PTA members. So I had a large backing. And I, you know, I had a website that was developed and I reached a lot of people around the country and even outside of the United States through that website. And I developed surrogates, um, other teachers and um, parents and a speech language pathologist who were you know, really on board with what I was trying to do. So I would share with them my PowerPoints and my information, and then they would do a presentation in their area because I honestly just didn't have the funds to travel to all of the states. That's kind of what happened, that's a really quick summary. It was a long process. I had done that for four years and then I went back to school to become a teacher. And I was looking for a teaching job. And at that point, um, a US representative, um, Jim McGovern, had heard about what I was doing. And he invited me to come and share my information with him in DC. And that led to an invitation to meet with the US Department of Education. (laughs) Um, So I had gotten quite far. But some of the problems I ran into (laughs) some of those walls, first of all, I always heard that money was an issue Um, and I would counter that with, okay, but if you spend the money on the equipment, you're going to save in uh, what you're paying for substitutes to cover for the teachers when they're out because their voice isn't working anymore. Um, You're going to save on special education referrals. And I had research um, very good research that you know backed me up on that, so I would share that with them. I, I also heard a lot of times, well, we'd like to try to pilot it in one school before we start, you know, trying to budget for it and put it in other schools. And that always was really puzzling to me because you know, kids are kids, <laughs> classrooms are <laughs> classrooms. Like you know, there were enough there was enough research done that I really felt like that was sort of an excuse or a waste of time and and even money to really pilot it. Um, So sometimes what I would do to kind of um, alleviate that concern was I'd say, you know, how about there's a a district um, that's not far from here that's using it. How about if I can put you in touch with, um, you know, teachers or the superintendent in that area, maybe you could talk to them about what they're seeing as the results rather than you being the one to pilot it. So that that helps sometimes. I The bureaucracy I ran into with that whole process of the Board of Education having to approve something, um, you know, they had to approve the vendors. They had to get the bids and approve the vendors, and they had to approve the budget, but then the budget had to be approved by a politician. And I always ran into a snag with that in my area with politician always really challenging the budget and slashing it in, in some cases oh so the one the one problem I ran into which was incredibly frustrating and at that point I was like I'm done with Baltimore county i'm just <laughs> going to focus on the rest of the country the county executive had taken the money out of the budget that the board members on the board of education had approved for this equipment and they had the first year I was advocating it for it they had put four hundred thousand dollars in their budget for it and he reduced it down to 50,000. And the second year, they came back even stronger and they said we're going to put 500,000 in the budget and he took it all out. Ugh. So they were upset that he had taken it out, so they decided well we don't need to approve a vendor because there's no money to to buy the anyway. equipment. But principals in the area wanted the equipment and had discretionary funds that they could use for it. But because the board members hadn't officially approved a vendor, they weren't allowed to buy any equipment. So like the, those were kind of little things with the bureaucracy that were just incredibly frustrating to deal with.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You were you must have been I can't imagine your persistence
1: in dealing with so many little things going wrong. Well, and, and, you know, the funny part was that most of the problems I ran into were in my area. I had more yeah. success outside of my area than I did within my area, so. Yeah.
0: It sounds like you had some really great ideas for disseminating information too, like having the, what did you call them? The the other folks the who surrogate. had your PowerPoints and your, yeah, the yeah. thank you. Just like the idea to put a team together like that and kind of have them go do it. And that's just a really good example. And I think that's a really interesting way to
1: kind of further a movement like that. Definitely. And, you know, back when I was doing this, we didn't have social media then, you know, there wasn't a Facebook or Twitter or anything. And so, you know, parents that are trying to advocate for something now or anyone trying to advocate for something um, can use those free resources. And that's incredibly helpful at spreading, spreading the word. Yes. And I'll have a link to your website and your book and everything
0: in the show notes for folks who are listening. So make sure you go check those out. (laughs) Great. And for parents who are listening, some of whom will have boundless energy and some of whom are working Mm full-time and have other special needs kids at home, what are some ways that they can advocate for their child to get educational supports that they need in the classroom? Like, oh, are there any ways to get things done that don't require years and years and uh, boundless bureaucracy? Yeah. Hoops to jump through.
1: Yeah. I mean, for simple things that you're trying to get in the classroom, um, you know, where you're not trying to modify a school facility. <laughs> um, and that's what I was going for. So that's one reason mine was so challenging. Um, you know, a lot of times you can talk to the administration of your school. And first of all, teachers, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher and teachers, they, they really do want to help every single child. They want Absolutely. to work with you. So, you know, I think if you can partner with the teacher and say, you know, I'd like you to have access to this in your classroom because it's going to help, you know, my child, what can I do to help you have that in your classroom or to allow you to be able to use that in your classroom, the teacher may have some good ideas um, and certainly will know how their their particular school works, you know, which administrator is, is a really good one to approach, Um, I would also say the guidance counselors in schools are amazing, you know, they really are a great, um, a great resource, they want to help all the kids and they want to work with the parents, and a lot of times they can be that sort of liaison um, between the parents and the, the people that work in the school. So I would definitely try to reach out to um, a guidance counselor. You know, if you can find if money is the issue, um, if you can find a group that will donate materials, that's another way. So if they throw out for you like, oh, we'd like to do that for you, but we don't have the funds for it or we don't have the funds right now. You know, you could say, well, what if I what if I can find a group that will donate those things to you? Or what if, um, you know, I have a fundraiser for it, you know, Mm -hmm. so you can ask them things like that. Also, I think if you can certainly, you know, if you have any sort of formal recommendation that your child have that in the, in the classroom, that it will be helpful, you know, that's something that they, they just can't turn down, especially, you know, if you have an IEP or something, they're legally obligated to, to use those things. Any good teacher is going to want to do and put in the classroom anything that's going to help the kids. And, you know, that in turn is going to make the teacher's job easier as well. I think if you can always couch it as like, you know, I know you're really busy, you have 25 kids that you're trying to help here. How can I, how can I help you? What can I do to help you? That's going to go a long way.
0: Thank you so much. This sounds like really great advice. And then I know in this podcast, we're sort of skipping over your whole career as a teacher. So you have to go read her book, good. <laughs> but just briefly as a teacher, now that you've been working in that capacity for such a long time, is there anything parents can do to support you in creating more accessible classrooms? So if when you're hitting bumps as a teacher in getting things into your classroom, mm-hmm. is there any way parents can help with that?
1: I think by first just asking, you know, what what is it you need? What would make your life easier while you're in this room working with all of these kids? Any good teacher wants every, all the kids to be successful and to be happy while they're there. So if, if you can just kind of set up that partnership relationship and, and, and really let them know that you, you feel their pain,
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> and
1: you want to help them. A lot of teachers are parents as well. So um, that's another thing to tap into. You know, if, if you do get if you do sense a little resistance from a teacher, probably just because their plate is so full, you know, I would pull the parent card out and, and say, you know, I, I realize that you are, you have a lot to do here in the classroom, you know, but this is my one child and, you know, I have to, you know, it's my job as a parent to, to do everything I can to make sure my child has what they need, you know, so how can we work together? And I, I think again, you know, that will, that will really, um, Get into the heart of the teachers and, and they're going to want, want to work with you
0: thank you so much suzanne that's really helpful stuff do you want to tell folks listening where they can learn more about you in your book
1: sure um, if they go to suzannedemelli.com my website they, first of all, they can get a lot of specific information about the hearing issues that I was talking about in the classroom. I have a lot of research on there. They can also easily buy my book through the website. They can have a link to Amazon. There's access to be able to contact me directly if they want to reach out to me personally. And I also have on my website links to all of my social media. So that's probably just the easiest way for anyone to learn more or to reach out to me
0: wonderful thank you so much thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode of neurodiverging today email me at neurodiverging.podcast@gmail.com at and let me know what you thought was the most interesting aspect of the story or what you would like to see in upcoming episodes. I want to thank Suzanne for being so open and honest and vulnerable with her story today. I hope it helps some of you out there who are struggling with the same kinds of issues. Suzanne's website and a link to her book, Can You Hear Me Now?, are below in the show notes. Please go check them out. Her website especially is fantastic with a lot of free resources, especially if you have a child with auditory processing disorder, autism, ADHD, or any other similar issue who is struggling at school. Thank you again to my patrons for supporting this episode of NeuroDiverging. Please go to patreon.com neurodiverging. Thank you again for being here with me. And remember, we are all in this together.
1: Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done...